Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey, not our evil, not Grainer. Very original. Uh, as you might have guessed from that, on today's episode, we're going to be covering the two latest security incidents to have made the news. Uh, the biggest being the Kaseya supply chain attack against MSPs and their customers. But before that, we will dive into the world of Print Nightmare. Man, that sounds pretty frightening, too. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and spool on in. So if you've been following the security news for the last couple of weeks, then there's a couple of big topics, I guess two, that have been gaining a lot of attention, uh, one being Print Nightmare and the other being the Kaseya Breach. And we'll cover both in this episode, but let's go ahead and quickly start with Print Nightmare. Uh, so there's some history behind this vulnerability that I guess we should probably catch you up on first. Uh, this all started last month, actually. Uh, in June, where Microsoft released a patch in their normal Patch Tuesday roundup, uh, I think it was June 8th, or no, June 6th, uh, that patched a privilege escalation vulnerability in the Windows print spooler process. Uh, this was CVE 2021-1675. And it was just a basic privilege escalation flaw that could enable any local cool. attacker... Yeah. No big deal. Yeah. Have cool. to have local access. I'm fine. <laughs> I'm cool. No any uh, any local actor uh, with limited credentials on a machine to elevate their access to system administra administrator if the principal was running, uh, as it is on Windows 10 by default, and Windows servers when they're running in domain controller mode. Everything sounds fine right now. Yeah. Well, my help desk can pwn me for fun, but that's about it. I mean, we make fun, right? like privilege escalation. There's still, you know, <laughs> I, <I'm> issues. <laughs> uh, they're obviously not as serious as some other ones, like ones we'll get into in a second. Uh, but yeah, I, was, I was kind of trying to give you a segue to get to <laughs> how it gets worse. Exactly. Um, so anyways, they patched this privilege escalation flaw on June 6th. A few weeks later, some different researchers than the ones that had discovered that one published their own analysis of CVE 2021-1675. Uh, where they found that it was not just a local privilege escalation, but it could also be used as a remote code execution flaw. Um, and this is, yeah, <laughs> ruh -ro, indeed. This is where they coined the name Print Nightmare uh, for this elevated flaw. And they also released proof of concept code at the same time, uh, thinking that the June, uh, early June patch also fixed this issue. Uh, so, the code execution flaw affected any Windows server configured to run as a domain controller and any Windows 10 device with the default settings, as well as any system that had the point and print enabled, which is a uh, basically a feature that allows any Windows user to connect to a remote printer uh, and download the config and drivers from that printer itself instead of needing to dr install drivers beforehand. Uh, if you remember, like, back in the day... Uh, you used to, with your brand new HP or Canon printer, you'd get that CD along with it, and you had to install the drivers and then plug it in. Drivers required elevated access uh, because drivers in general on Windows have a lot of access on the system, so they typically need administrator credentials to install. And this uh, point and print feature was basically to allow, in the case of printers, the print spooler could install signed or unsigned drivers straight from the printer. Nice ease of access thing, but as we're seeing with this privilege escalation flaw and now this remote code execution flaw, uh, it can be abused, unfortunately. Uh, so still continuing with the story, as it turns out, 
Print Nightmare was similar to, but ultimately different from the original flaw. And the patch that was released on June 8th, I was right the first time, uh, did not protect against it. So the researchers, when they found this out, removed their proof of concept code, but that was already too late and it had already become widely circulated among threat actors and widely exploited out there in the wild. Uh, Microsoft ultimately filed CVE 2021-34527 and released a fix for this, along with some stronger protections to the print driver installation on July 6th. So now about a month later, this was an out-of-band emergency patch before their normal patch Tuesday for July. Um, Along with the fix, this update also restricts installing unsigned printer drivers to full administrators. So previously, the delegated administrator groups like the printer operators could install these unsigned drivers. So in theory, now backing up a bit, with this patch and everything, legitimate printers can still work. Most printer uh, manufacturers still have signed drivers. You have to go through a validation process with Microsoft uh, in order to get your drivers signed by them to be able to install in this case. Um, but this should, in theory, fix the um, the potential code execution vulnerability for unsigned drivers installed by threat actors. Uh, unfortunately, the patch itself doesn't appear to have been complete. Uh, so Gentle Kiwi, who's the author of Mimikatz, found a way to bypass the patch just by using different file patch formatting. It looks like they were doing checks based off of strings for file paths. And he found if you use a UNC path, you can get past it. Also, if that point and print feature is still enabled uh, with the no warning, no elevation on install or on update flags checked, the patch completely prevents the attack. Uh, Luckily, this registry key does not exist by default, uh, which means by default, if you update, you are now patched. But quite a few people still enable this feature to basically stop those admin prompts from popping up anytime a user tries to install a print driver. So that was a lot. Basically, this is a month-long saga of a privilege escalation flaw that has morphed into a code execution flaw that still really hasn't been fully patched uh, because of these additional features. I heard one uh, pundit describe it as the remote part of this is a little bit better, but the local privilege, is that true? Or do you think the remote part is still somewhat there? Uh, So the remote part's better unless you have that... um, registry entry still enabled unfortunately um so they've done like a decent amount to fix it Uh, they've mitigated a lot of the risks uh but the flaw is still there on some systems unfortunately so it looks like we're gonna have to get another patch hopefully in time for patch tuesday this upcoming tuesday but i guess we'll see instead of how many licks it takes to get to a the center of a tootsie pop we should ask how many how many patches it takes to (laughs) For Microsoft to get print spool right. Unfortunately, this was like, it's not like a, you know, a comedy of errors. It's just more info kept coming to light. And it was kind of compounded yeah. by the the second researchers, unfortunately, jumping the gun on releasing proof of concept code uh, without confirming that the patch actually fixed this code execution bit of it. So a bit unfortunate. The good news is like there are resolutions. So you can install all the patches that are available right now. Uh, and then you can delete and, or disable the registry keys if they exist. So these keys are HKLM uh, software slash policy slash Microsoft slash Windows NT slash printers slash point and print. And the <laughs> keys themselves are two D words, one of them being no warning, no elevation on install and no warning, no elevation on update. 
Again, these are do not exist by default. So by default with a patch system, you're safe. But if you have added these or some other program has added them, you'll need to go and set them back to zero or delete them to secure the system and keep yourself safe from print nightmare. Or just don't ever print. Yeah. Turn it all off. I mean, the problem Who's is... printing in 2021 anyways? The the issue isn't necessarily with, like, printing. It's that, like, these the print spooler comes enabled by default on Windows 10, uh, just for ease of use on local LANs and, like, family networks. And then it comes enabled by default when you turn a Windows server into a domain controller to enable print sharing there as well. This is just one of those things where, you know, it's ease of use and it just had some security issues but unfortunately because of their widespread enablement it becomes a pretty serious issue when those security flaws are found and it's not the first time we've seen issues with the print spooler on windows 10 or windows in general it does actually have a lot of elevated permissions partially because it needs to be able to install print drivers and again any driver gives you pretty elevated access on a system so if you can find a way to trick it into installing a driver under your control uh, as an attacker then you basically have system level access on the host so good on i mean we're a little dumping on microsoft a little but good on them for at least like along with the patch adding the whole only admins can install unsigned drivers thing that is something that probably should have existed from the get-go but it is at least a, a small mitigation that you can have in this case um so that was print nightmare, which was like all the rage. It seemed like everyone on Twitter was talking about this throughout the course of last week, or I guess probably two weeks ago, right up until around like two o'clock on Friday, where bigger news uh, seemed to take over. So last Friday, uh, we and the rest of the industry became aware of ransomware being distributed via the Kaseya VSM RMM solution, so remote monitoring and management solution. Yeah. Thank you for defining RMM. I'm not sure how Kaseya defines VSM. That's their own acronym. But RMM is Remote Monitoring and Management. And I, if you're a typical like company, you may not be aware of it. But if you're a part, a service provider, a IT, you know, a, a managed service provider, IT service provider, it's a very popular tool for managing a lot of devices, especially at your customers' sites. Yeah, basically, it would be flat out impossible for you to go and install patches or software or whatever on site every single time. So these tools that you enable, enable you from a centralized location to distribute applications, install patches, all of that. And because of that, they have elevated permissions. The agents that run on the individual endpoints all have local admin permissions to be able to do all this action, or I guess system level permissions to be able to do these actions, which means if an attacker is able to breach into the system, it just becomes basically shooting fish in a barrel for them when it comes to attacking endpoints. Um, so in this particular case, uh, it's I guess by the time this podcast is posting, we've got probably quite a bit more information available. Um, but at the time where we're recording this, we still actually know a decent amount about the attack, uh, at least in terms of the malware that was distributed and some at least educated guesses and uh, recreation of the root cause that caused the attack to actually become distributed. Um, I guess I'd say even more, uh, more than educated guesses, since a lot of them are based on like logs and get and post requests that, that were logged and seen to these on-premises Kaseya VSA servers. So the, all the details aren't there, but there is quite a bit of detail uh, 
We just don't want to say we know the vulnerability is 100% until they really are publicly disclosed. Yep. And if you've been following this on Secplicity, Corey wrote a blog post on Friday, very soon after this news first broke and updated it throughout the weekend. So you probably already know a decent amount of the details, but I guess we can kind of start with like a general overview of the attack. Corey, you want to take that one? Sure. As Mark mentioned, it started on July 2nd. Uh, It probably started early in the morning Eastern time, uh, but there's a difference in time when the attack against the Kaseya VSA server started and maybe that the ransomware itself was dropped. But it was really around afternoon Pacific time, the time zone we happen to be in, that we started to see more and more posts about this. Uh, some of just the raw numbers is uh, this, as a, if you're an endpoint, just a normal organization listening, you may not use this tool, but remember it's used by managed service providers. And often managed ser- service providers might have tens, if not hundreds of different organizations they manage IT for. So a- as of this writing, uh, the community is aware of around 30 managed service providers that were affected by this attack. And that means all of their customers, many of their customers were collateral damage because of course the, the VSA agent was on those devices. And uh, the numbers continue to change, but right now it seems like anywhere between 1,500 to 2,000 overall organizations could be the fallout from all of the, these MSPs. It's, uh, you know, it's a gang. The gang behind it is someone you've heard Mark and I talk about before. Uh, I call them our evil, or you might have heard us call them Revel. Or Revel, uh, or uh, whatever I feel like pronunciating it that yeah. particular time. Uh, I like our evil because I think it's excellent branding for their name. They absolutely are evil. But anyways, the our evil gang that's best known for Sodino Kibi and a number of other, I, I think JBS was, they've been behind a lot of the attacks, even Colonial Pipeline, if I'm remembering right. We know this because their uh, dark web happy blog post has a post for this attack where they're demanding $70 million for a master decryption key. Uh, as we mentioned, we'll get into more detail, but we know it, it leveraged some zero day to break into the Kaseya server. And then basically it uploaded, uh, you know, one, a file that was ultimately the encoded payload, and two, something that looked like a screenshot picture, but really was additional code that was then, this is where the details you know, we'll have to learn a bit more with logs, but that code was basically stuff that was run through the Kaseya server in order to send a special, a very special command.exe command to all of the agents that that are under the Kaseya control. Uh, That command we're talking about, while it ultimately did drop a filed payload, it used a lot of living off the land techniques to evade security throughout this attack. You can see a lot of neat evasive techniques. Uh, Luckily, we do have products that catch it. We don't think there's any, uh, you know, you might have heard of talk about double extortion. That's where they not only encrypt your files, but they steal data and they then try to kind of threaten you to they'll pawn off that data if you don't pay the ransom. It doesn't seem to have any sort of exfiltration. So no double extortion yet that we know of. And finally, Kaseya, you know, responded just as quick as us, of, of course. And as they, they learned about it, you hear that so far the community thinks they responded well. But uh, their advice was to shut down on-premise Kaseya VSA servers, to take them offline. And they took off, just so you know, they have a SaaS version and and the on-premise version. They took down their SaaS version, and neither of those have been restored yet. If there is no patch yet, uh, we hope one comes out today or in the next few days. 
and the SAS version is not due to come up till the afternoon of Sunday. So right now, you if you're a Kaseya user, you should have your server down and you cannot access the SAS product right now. Yeah. And so again, we kind of hinted at the timeline where the attack started early in the morning on July 2nd. At least that's when we started seeing telemetry show up in our WatchGuard and Panda endpoints. Um, and then they were using basically this synchronization or uh, kind of way to trick all the endpoints to run at the exact same time later on the next day. Yeah, pretty much they had a they started their malicious command with a ping that had an extra parameter that had a value that differed on every endpoint, but that value was calculated based on the local time and the offset to to start at 1630. Uh, on July 2nd. By by wh when I say start, that's when the ransomware dropper was put on all the clients. The attack likely happened before that. Yep. Um, so it did happen before that. Yes. <laughs> it, it, it had to have happened before that or you wouldn't have been at that position. Or it was some like temporal anomaly <laughs> ransomware attack where it actually happens in the future. Loki. It was Loki. And what are they called? The VTA, the, the, the time cops? Exactly. Sorry. Nerd, nerd references for any Disney lovers out there. Um, so we hinted at we don't have confirmation from Kaseya on exactly how they exploited these VSA servers to deploy the ransomware. Um, but we do have at least a recreation from like researchers at Huntress. Uh, they were able to recreate the exploit chain using three vulnerabilities chained together, an authentication bypass, an arbitrary file upload, and a command injection flaw. And that authentication bypass seems to be one that was actually reported back to Kaseya in April by the Dutch Institute of Vulnerability uh, Disclosure, DIVD. Um, and Kaseya has actively been working on trying to patch it, but at that this point in time, they clearly didn't. And it seems to have been what kind of ticked off the whole chain of uh, flaws that allowed people to deploy the ransomware. As an aside, they actually found seven different vulnerabilities, and they say Kaseya has been working with them very well, and four of those are patched. Three aren't. One is the one Mark just talked about, and I think there was a cross-site scripting one. And, and an MFA bypass. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's take a look at the actual the malware itself, though. Um, so you mentioned it starts with a, a command that's run just in Windows command prompt. This is kind of deployed through Kaseya, they're able to, you're able to issue commands from the agent to execute on the local computer. Um, in this case, do you want to walk through the actual command, how it goes? Sure. I mean, the, the first thing to know, if there are any Kaseya listeners, if this happened on your computer, you would see a log. This is kind of pretending to be a procedure to update your Kaseya agent. It obviously isn't, but that's what it's pretending to be. So I believe you would see in your logs Kaseya VSA agent hotfix. Uh, but basically, this is a pretty long uh, command.exe that uses a lot of living off the land techniques. It, it changes the PowerShell pretty quickly. The only thing it does before PowerShell is this little ping, which is kind of to evade behavioral detection, but more importantly, to to really have that that weight offset so that it starts all at the same time. You know, uh, being able to encrypt all victims at one time kind of improves your chances of people paying. If suddenly everything comes encrypted at once, it's a good thing for bad guys, unfortunately, to do. Then it changes to PowerShell. Uh, the PowerShell has a lot of parameters that disables a lot of defender protections. It turns off IPS. Uh, it turns off a lot of other stuff. We have a YouTube video with a webinar where we go into a little more detail. Then it starts to use a very common living off the land technique besides PowerShell, which is one of the binaries that's very commonly used, a very legitimate program. 
that can do a lot of bad stuff because it has a lot of power. Uh, there's other programs like CertUtil that can do a lot of bad stuff, even though they're legitimate programs, if you happen to have system privileges. CertUtil, you know, its its real purpose is to help with certificate validation, certificate authority, stuff like that. But two of the things it can also do is one, it can decode things. It has to do that sometimes. It can decode base 64, and it can also grab something from a URL and download it. And again, because CertUtil is a program that just comes with Windows, it's not malicious. So it's a, it's a great evasion technique. A long story short, basically they copy a version of CertUtil into a directory, uh, rename it to cert.exe. Uh, this is just all more evasion to try to get past security controls. But then they run that cert.exe, which is still really the legitimate CertUtil, and that both downloads uh, something they dropped on the VSA server called agent.crt, which is just a base64 encoded file that they're decoding and turning into agent.exe, and they're, they're putting in a path. Then it has a little code to clean up after itself and run agent.exe. I didn't know if you you can go into a bit more detail about what Agent Exe does, Mark. Yeah, uh, I'm had no idea that PowerShell had a lot of power though. Uh, that's news to me. I know it's it, almost like it, you should name it that would, way. You, yeah, they should probably name it so that people understood that. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, uh, so this Agent.exe is the actual like malicious payload that gets downloaded, and what it does is it extracts and generates two other files then. Uh, there's one msmpeng.exe, which is an old but legitimate version of Microsoft Defender, and then mspsvc.dll, which is a library developed by R-Evil um, that is the actual ransomware uh, binary, the actual ransomware um, executable. So what it does is it takes it uses DLL hijacking, which is basically a way to trick a executable into loading up a uh, malicious DLL by overwriting the legitimate DL, DLL. Um, and it does that. It executes Microsoft Defender and it loads up that malicious ransomware DLL in its place and then executes it from there. Uh, this is another evasion technique because a lot of anti-malware engines may notice the, the hash of Microsoft Defender and say, oh, that's Microsoft Defender and ignore everything else it does after then. Yeah. And then miss another that legitimate process. Yep. Miss yeah. that it's loading up a tainted DLL instead of the legitimate MSP SVC DLL. Um, and then once it executes, it's just bad news from there, starts encrypting all of your files and then displays a ransom note letting you know you're about to have a pretty bad day. Um, so the good news is like we know about a lot of these behaviors because at least if you're a WatchGuard uh, customer, our endpoint products caught it. Uh, doesn't matter if you were using the, the consumer version of Panda, AD360, Cytomic, or WatchGuard, EPDR. Uh, all of them share this contextual engine that was able to catch it based off of just a bunch of dynamic rules that it has in there to catch bad stuff. Basically, it, it you know, while cmd.exe is goodware and PowerShell is goodware, some of our rules are monitoring that, and it was able to recognize parts of the CMD command that were suspicious and then ultimately bad. And same with the PowerShell, even if it had missed the cmd.exe, which it didn't, it recognized the PowerShell was bad. It also, all that stuff I, I vaguely went over quickly about cert-util changing to cert.exe, and you know, it also noticed some of those as unknown files, so that if you ran it in one of its modes called lock mode, in lock mode, we will only 
let processes or files be used, run, or, or be touched by users if they are known for sure to be good. And of course, if they're known for sure to be bad, we won't let them run at all. If it's unknown in lock mode, we won't let it run until it's gone through our automated service, which uh, involves a cloud cloud lookups, there's machine learning models that we run things through, behavioral analysis, and ultimately, usually we catch, I think it's something like 98 point, or actually it's like 99, it's something like only 0.01% that still needs human analysis. But occasionally, even if something's suspicious enough, but we don't have enough confidence yet, there's even real-time analysts with SLAs that respond to this. So in lock mode, there's even some unknown files that we simply wouldn't let run. And if cert wasn't able to run, you never would have gotten agent.exe to drop. By the way, at this point, everyone and their brother also has direct signatures for agent.exe, but all the protections we're talking about would have worked and caught this even before there was signatures for these files. My brother's a lawyer. I doubt he has signatures for this. I doubt he even knows it exists. <laughs> but everyone and almost everyone's brother, I think is what you're getting at. Um, but anyways, yeah. <laughs> so that's endpoint at the network level. Uh, we, as soon as we saw this news pop up, we quickly went out and grabbed any samples we could find to run them through the various services that run on the Firebox appliance. Uh, we found that APT blocker caught that agent executable immediately. Um, GAV now has signatures to catch most of the ransomware and associated files. Uh, because the vulnerabilities they hit in the Kaseya uh, VSA server were zero days, we don't have IPS signatures for them yet. But as soon as we know the details from Kaseya or third-party researchers, we'll have signatures developed and stick them in there as well. Uh, but one important thing to note with these network detections is that in order for them to work, it, especially the malware detections, the malware has to come in over the network through a proxy. And there's a bunch of different ways that threat actors ultimately download or deploy malware on a host once they've gained a hold of it. Like they may have gained access through the administrative web portal, which is HTTP or HTTPS, meaning you can stick a proxy in, in front of we, it. Yeah, um, but we could catch it. It could be once they've gained access to it, they use some other protocol to go out and grab the malware. Yeah. And by the way, this isn't one of those situations, but there's even memory corruption vulnerabilities where they can directly execute shell code. And then the way they kind of stage payloads may be outside normal download mechanisms. By the way, one thing I want to say is this, despite both our network and endpoint protections, I want to be clear, what we're able to catch is the ransomware and the dropper. Uh, even though we caught and blocked that, and we can see ourselves catching and blocking that for many uh, for users, your Kaseya server is still uh, using colloquial terms pwned. They have system control, uh, so we that that was a zero day flaw. I, I'm not aware of anyone really blocking that. Uh, so do know that. The good news is in this case, it seems very automated once they get past that flaw. So this dropper seems to be all it did. So really us blocking the ransomware dropper would, would block, if, if you were a customer using our products, it would prevent the, the kind of the result of this. But technically your Kaseya server is still owned if this happened to you. And there's much more things a bad guy could do from that very elevated set of privileges. So we have great protections that save people from the ransomware, but I do want folks out there that might've been affected by this to realize, you know, people, the, the attacker did have a privileged position in that server and there's other things they could try despite that ransomware failing. Yep. Um, so, I mean, the good news is if you're a WatchGuard customer and you had some of those things deployed, 
uh, you had a decent shot at catching this. Like we had overwhelming success stories from this from our customer base. But I guess like if you aren't a watch guard customer, uh, maybe we can go into some like defensive tips, or I guess even if you are some defensive tips for this particular incident and then just other ones in general. Um, maybe do you want to start with what they could do with yeah. regards to this particular incident? Yeah, so for first, for this particular incident, what you should have already done and should be doing right now is th this did primarily affect on-premises Kaseya VSA servers, which you should have disabled, you know, July 2nd. And by disabled, it's either turn off or make sure it's not connected to any sort of internet or public network. So really, I, I know it puts you in a tough place because it would be your managing and monitoring solution, but that is the rec recommendation. Today, this is zero day. The, regardless of when DVI found it, there is no patch for some of these vulnerabilities. You need to disable that and get it offline if you haven't already. Just so you know, for the SaaS version, it, it there's no evidence of this attack affecting it. Mark and I, by the way, suspect it's very likely that some of these flaws still affect the SaaS version. But it could be simply either, you know, there's enough uh, operational monitoring and security of the SAS version that Kaseya would have noticed, or B, the attacker simply focused on on-premise versions because they didn't want the, the attention of attacking the cloud. But in either case, right now, the SAS version is offline, won't restore until Sunday, and you should have your VSA server offline. What you can do now is they have Kaseya, as of yesterday, released what they call runbooks for things to do both on the SaaS and on-premise version. The SaaS runbook, you, you can't start until it comes back online. So if you're a SaaS user, you, you don't even, you, you should read that runbook just to know what you're up for, but that's something you can't execute until the SaaS service comes back. However, the the on-premise runbook is things you're supposed to be doing before the patch. So it runs through a lot of things, changes you need to make to IAS, the way you can get your VSA server offline, uh, some things, uh, there are some software, some FireEye agent software that they're giving out that you can install in some other things. So if you're an on-premise user, check out that runbook that's available. You can find it at Kaseya's advisory. It's all over the place and grab that. And obviously patch when available. We're all, at one time, they had promised the patch midday yesterday, but things are being delayed. The second the patch comes out, uh, to, to use the thing Mark made fun of me before, everyone and your brother, meaning all the big security companies like us, will be warning you about it. So go get that. And I think one of the reasons why this is being delayed so much, I mean, they it looks like they have brought in FireEye uh, to help with their incident yeah, response to it. And my gut tells me that like they're taking this as an opportunity to do a massive security overhaul of a lot of their platforms. Like that tends to be the case. If you have a major incident like this, before you bring it back online, you got to go scrub the rest of your issues in it. Basically the, the CEO said as much, he said they're spending millions on security and the SaaS service in particular will be exponentially more secure when it comes back up. They've put WAF in front of their web application firewall. By the way, that is another tip. Uh, ultimately, this the on-premise service, like a lot of your 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 controls and security things, they have web management. Web management is just another website that can have web application flaws. WAF stands for Web Application Firewall. Not at all like a traditional firewall. It's a very specific thing, but it's designed to block many of the very common and sometimes uncommon web application attacks, like 
arbitrary file upload, like some of the things you might do to leak credentials through a web application, cross-site scripting, SQL injection, so on and so forth. So putting a WAF in front of an on-premise version, if you do have a WAF, is a good thing. It should be in front of any web-based management interfaces or websites you have, if you have that capability. And do know Kaseya is going to be doing that for their, their, their cloud-based ones. The last thing is, we strongly believe that you should be using least privilege principle or zero trust policies for any important management interface. Uh, something like a RMM, remote management and monitoring, by definition, it's remote. It's designed to allow you to, to manage things remotely. So it's certainly going to need ports and policies open for all its clients. However, you're ultimately going to one management, web-based management interface to control it. There's no reason for you to expose that to the, the whole internet. Even if it uses encrypted communications and has its own authentication mechanisms, as we're learn, learned, if there's a vulnerability in those, bam, that in public internet access exposes you to those vulnerabilities. You should limit access to that management interface to only your technicians that should have access to it. It is harder, but there's lots of ways you can still do this. You've heard Mark and I talk about VPNs all the time. You can have VPN access so nothing's publicly exposed. They have to authenticate with MFA to get to it. If you can't do VPN, or by the way, there's also our access portal. You know, there's non-clientless VPNs, ways that we use, you know, kind of a TLS redirection or HTTPS redirection, where you can just have this access portal. To get to the access portal, you have to log in with MFA. But once you do, then you can suddenly access this web-based management interface. But not everyone on the internet can, because they won't be able to authenticate. Uh, you can even use, although this is the last ditch technique and probably the hardest, access control lists. Don't allow it to everyone on the internet. Allow it to specific IPs or IP blocks where your technicians come from. That is a little harder in this day and age as we all work from different places and move around. But with Dyn DNS or IP blocks, you can at least get more restrictive than all of the internet. But I think the best thing to do is VPNs or at least taking, I think the easiest way is taking advantage of things like our access portal or other product access portals. Yep, exactly. I mean, when it comes to just general tips, like this should be a perfect highlight for why things like business continuity and disaster recovery plans are so important. Like basically you cannot prevent every single cyber incident because sometimes they come in through the front door with things like your RMM software. That means you need to and, have- And, and it's zero days, something yeah. that uh, people are saying turn it off because there's currently no fix for this. Yeah. <laughs> There is no, yeah, because there's no fix, like it could leave you wide open if you don't have a plan in place to deal with it. And that means like having plans for backups, testing your backups, having legal counsel and incident response, either on staff or on retainer, uh, basically setting yourself up where if something happens, you know exactly how to respond to it to keep your business online uh, without running into significant issues. Um, and the legal and IR staff is very specific. You know, there's a lot of disaster recovery. You could have a server just a building collapse, and that's one reason you'd need BCDR. But in, in the cyber case, this also becomes a breach, especially if you're MSP, because now you're dealing with customers. So the legal part Mark mentions is, is very important because 
it, this should be a very big investigation. You're going to want to gather evidence. In fact, a lot of people don't talk about this is you can't immediately restore. You know, there's going to be evidence gathering and documenting you're going to have to do to create a case to ultimately, you know, one, find these bad guys and prove to your customers in the world that you did all the diligence. So, you know, the, the legal staff, the having an incident response team, very important. And if you're so small that you, you don't have that, that's why having one ready on retainer so you don't have to figure out in the middle of the process is, is so great. Yeah. Um, and when it comes to backups, uh, there's a lot of things. It's not just enough to, you know, create a backup and then call it good. Like these days, you need to follow things like the 322 rule. So keeping three copies of your data, two of them locally but on different devices, two of them off-site, potentially one in a remote location, one in a cloud. That way, uh, you have local backups available for, you know, if someone in accounting accidentally deletes a file, you can restore a backup that way. But if you get hit with ransomware and it encrypts all of your local backups or deletes them or disables them, you still have potential offsite backups to revert back to. They might be a little more out of date, uh, but at least you have something instead of just being completely hosed in the event of a ransomware attack. Because one of the first uh, things... Uh, Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, and that I know it's a lot of work, but that extra 2-2 is important because this isn't the first targeted MSP ransomware attack. There have been others. And one of them, the attacker purposely targeted Veeam backups. The Veeam backup was exposed to them. That's one of the cloud backups. And they, they were able to delete that first. And that's why having the multiple types of backups and the multiple offsite locations or the multiple site locations is important because... They're getting sophisticated enough that they'll delete what they find, but having copies in different places will give you redundancy. Because this attack, while it was sophisticated in that they used zero-day vulnerabilities, it's actually less sophisticated than a lot of the ransomware attacks we've been seeing lately, where it, it takes more than a day. Like The first week or so is just them scoping out the network, figuring out where your backups are, um, and then disabling them, deleting them, doing whatever they can. So when it comes time to doing that final coup de gras of a ransomware attack, you have no other recourse but to potentially pay them in order to get access to your files again, unless you were using offsite backups as well. Um, and again, backups are only as good as your confirmation that they actually work. So make sure that you regularly test your backups, test restoring them so that you're not just caught with your pants down in one of these events if it turns out, oh, our whole process broke six months ago and we didn't know it because we didn't test it kind of thing. Um, how about when it comes to defending against threats in general, Corey, like what are some tips you can throw out there? Wow. I, you know, the thing is there is no silver bullet and that's why me and Mark always say layered defense. Lots of different defenses can help with different parts of these attacks. Obviously, endpoint protection helped a lot with the, the MFA, but or with the, I'm sorry, the ransomware dropping. I'm getting ahead of myself. But things like MFA, you know, in this case, there might have been a credential hijack that got past it, but uh, MFA has helped in the past ransomware attacks where a credential leak was used and there was no MFA in place. Having advanced anti-malware detection. All these protections we talked about in, in our endpoint products that worked without signatures. Uh, typically, it's using things like machine learning models to pre predictively predict new malware, behavioral analysis. So even if kind of malware tries to do it 
it's a little shape shifting in its form. What it actually does on your computer still is the same. So behavioral analysis catches it. And then things like EDR, endpoint detection and response solutions have a lot of capability to, to find some of the indicators used in these living off the land attacks, which do leverage legitimate processes. So really focusing more on that advanced anti-malware detection that includes EDR capabilities too, and not just traditional AV. Uh, because like a lot of RMM solutions and their documentation, unfortunately, still tell you to whitelist a lot of their directories too, which means some of the traditional anti-malware engines that just rely on scanning directories for malware payloads uh, would miss a lot of these styles of threats. That's why you need more advanced solutions that will look at not just you know directories of files, but also running processes and behaviors of those processes to look for potential red flags like command prompt suddenly spinning up PowerShell and disabling all of your other anti-malware protections. Um, there was a Kaseya directory involved in that whole command, but in this case, we still would have seen the command run even if the, the people had kind of whitelisted or exceptioned the, the K working directory. Exactly. And then finally, like the whole industry is moving towards this zero trust model. And that's because it does a lot to protect your organization. Basically, uh, actually, I'm going to let Corey give his analogy because it, I can't do it oh, with gosh. a straight face, but it's one of my favorite analogies. You don't like my Tootsie Pops? <laughs> <laughs> so I I think really a lot of our old school security paradigm is, is very Tootsie Pop oriented in it that it has a, a hard and crunchy exterior, but once you get past that, there's a soft and chewy center. You know, when people get inside your LAN, almost everything's allowed. There's flat networks, users can... You know, there might be other authentications in other places, but they can network-wise get to all the servers and do all the things. Uh, zero trust is all about, you know, forcing validation before trusting anything, even on local networks. This means, for instance, your accountant should never have access to a source code server. Not even not be able to log into it with the right credential, but why even get to it on the network? So zero trust goes to that level. It starts with identifying users and devices. And by the way, because zero trust is 100% based on that identity, it means strong validation is very important. That's why the tip of MFA, you know, if I can steal Mark's credential and suddenly I become, that's enough to become Mark, you know, zero trust would not work as well because I can just become Mark and do what he does. But if you have MFA, you can much more strongly, you know, validate Mark really is who he says he is. So with zero trust, it's all about limiting access. It's about, you know, adding the least privileged principle down to every single thing, even on your local trusted network. And uh, there's solutions that can help, but you could frankly do this with your Firebox today if you wanted to. I mean, if you're using SSO with your Firebox, you can have a setup where every user is authenticated first. We see them by user. You can start segmenting your network, whether that's putting different trust levels on different physical networks or putting different departments on different VLANs. And once you have that segment by trust level or department, then every time one department tries to get access to something somewhere else, they have to go through a gateway that does a check. Is this person allowed network access to it? Yes or no. 
Maybe it's no, but then it's if it's yes, they still might have to do the authentication protocol. So you'll see WatchGuard doing more and more zero trust things. There's a lot of zero trust principle you can apply with our tools today, but you'll see things like more zero trust policies and AuthPoint and other products as well. Exactly. I didn't know if you had more to add, Mark. Well, I mean, also it comes down to monitoring too. So once you've set that up, then you can look for anomalies like someone accessing something they shouldn't have access to and then act based off of that too. So monitoring and visibility play a big part in a zero trust as well. But again, like when it comes to all of this, like Corey said, there's no silver bullet and having that disaster recovery and business continuity plan and one that you've tested and confirmed works is still going to be key because at the end of the day, like there are zero day vulnerabilities out there that may allow someone to get past these protections. I, I would say I even now that I'm a WatchGuard CSO too, with great help from Mark and team, I would say this should be your number one thing as a CSO. Like, uh, obviously you want to prevent as many attacks as you want and put up good security controls, but any good security person knows no matter how great you are at security, it's not a matter of, of if, but when. You know, even the NSA has been hacked. You know, things will happen. And the problem is business continuity and disaster recovery planning, it takes a lot of work. And you're working for this imagined scenario that you don't know when is going to happen. So it so often gets sidelined. We all have businesses to run. We all have a million things to do a day, you know, so I definitely understand why it gets sidelined. But I think it's one of the most important things you can do because no CSO is ever going to be able to protect to, to or CISO is going to be able to say, I can perfectly protect this network so there'll never be an incident. But what you can do is you can ensure that the business can continue running and get back up to speed very quickly, regardless of the incident. So it, it put this on the top. This and MFA are really two high return and investment value type of things to do. So this whole incident is still very much developing, I'm sure, within 24 hours of us even recording this podcast, there will be significant. There'll be a patch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but by so, the way, when you're listening to this, I actually said the SaaS service is down, but considering you'll be listening to this Monday or Tuesday, it will be back up. It's going back up Sunday, as we said. But regardless, keep an eye on Secplicity too, uh, with the post titled Breaking Alert MSP Targeted Ransomware Attack, Kaseya Supply Chain Attack, because we'll keep that updated as well as more developments occur. Um, but you do at least have protections you can put into place now, regardless of if you're a Kaseya customer or not, to defend against similar attacks in the future too. Man, what a scary world we live in these days. Yeah, those ransomware authors are making a lot of money. We definitely need the authorities to start catching them. We need some better extradition laws for some countries that don't really support that. They really are evil. <laughs> Our evil. There you go. But dump bump. You used my joke. <laughs> hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you could reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey is at SecAdept. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. Thanks again for listening. And you'll hear from us next week.